on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So in, it was in 1985, I was playing golf down by the Cape. It was summer when Danny Ainge first laid eyes on the man who could change the fate of his franchise. Ainge was the Boston Celtics starting shooting guard. He was early in his career, finding a role on a team packed with talent. The Celtics had just come off a loss to the Lakers in the 1985 NBA Finals. I was just stopping by Marshfield on my way back, where Red used to have his summer camps. Red Auerbach. He's one of the great coaches in NBA history. His Celtics teams won nine championships between 1957 and 1966. Well, in the 80s, he'd moved from the Celtics' sideline to the front office. And every summer, he hosted these camps where he invited a bunch of college stars. I wasn't really feeling like I wanted to play with the campers. Uh, I was just basically going to stop by and say hi to Red. So he gets there. There were some of the late round draft picks that were there and some of the campers and local college kids and, and Lynn Bias was there. I mean, my gosh, it was like there was nobody else in the gym from my perspective. I couldn't tell you any any of the other players there. It was just Lynn Bias and I was watching him play. Afterwards, Bias went back to Maryland. He was still months away from his famous game against North Carolina, still yet to reach the full peak of his stardom. Ainge went back to Boston where he and his teammates would put together one of the best seasons in NBA history, going 67-15 and 15 and beating the Houston Rockets in six games to win the title. But that season, even while the Celtics were focused on the task at hand, bias loomed in the background. Boston had made a trade the year before, sending Gerald Henderson to Seattle for a first-round pick in the 1986 draft. And Seattle was bad. So Boston was in the rare position of being an elite team with a high lottery pick. As we started talking, as it became clear that we were probably going to draft Lynn Bias, you know, it was just, okay, so he's going to be a kid that comes in and comes off the bench and he'll be able to prolong this Celtics dynasty for another decade. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm your host, Jordan Ritter Khan.
When we debate the greatest NBA teams of all time, a few usual suspects tend to come up. They're the 95-96 Bulls, Michael Jordan back from his baseball sabbatical, Scottie Pippen at the peak of his powers, Dennis Rodman as one of the great role players in the history of the sport. More recently, they're the 2016-17 Warriors, a team that won 73 games the year before and then added Kevin Durant. If you want to go way back, you could say the 1966-67-76ers, a team that started the season 46-4 and and had Wilt Chamberlain near his all-time peak. If you ask one of the NBA's great historians, Boston Globe legend Bob Ryan, he'll point to those 85-86 Celtics. They could outrun you. They could out-execute you. They could out-defend you. They could out-rebound you. I'm not saying the best of all time, but they're in the discussion. Well, they were the best team I ever saw in person. That's another Boston sports media legend, Jackie McMullen. Because they had everything you needed. They had finesse players, they had shooting, but they were very physical. And back then, the NBA was a very physical game. The Celtics had five Hall of Famers. And between the regular season and the playoffs, they went 50-1 and at home. They had everything. They had everything. They had a bench. They had the best front court of all time. Anybody that argues that doesn't have any idea what he or she are talking about. This was the team Lynn Bias was set to join, a team already among the best the game has ever seen. What if? Here's Bob Ryan to give us a quick rundown of the team Bias would have been joining. So let's start with Robert Parrish was a, a conventional center with an unconventional turnaround jumper that he could shoot from a, a distance. Next to Parrish at the five, there was Kevin McHale at the four the greatest low post machine at forward in the history of the game. The best footwork, the biggest range of shots. He's the standard of excellence. And next to McHale, just a guy named Larry Bird. And Larry Bird, I don't think I have to go into this. You know, Larry Bird's the best forward of all time. He and LeBron are the two best forwards of all time. So those are the starters up front. And then coming behind them that year was the X factor that makes them the greatest pre-three-point mania team. You know, we're now in a different world of all time. Bill Walton. When he came in with Bird, it was almost unfair some nights. It was almost unfair. It was hilarious. There was also Dennis Johnson, the point guard and a lockdown defender. And of course, Ainge was just a couple years away from becoming an all-star. At the helm of the ship, there was head coach Casey Jones and team president Red Auerbach. Red was the guy who assembled this incredible mass of talent, and he remained this larger-than-life presence within the organization. Well, Red Auerbach's the most prominent non-playing person in the history of the league. He was the president of the team. He was a daily presence. He had influence and power. Everything was run through by him. He was just the reigning godfather of the league. I mean, he really was. Auerbach is synonymous with Boston, but he actually lived most of the year in another city. Here's Jackie. I don't know if people know this, but Red did not live in Boston. He lived in Washington, D.C. And so when Red was back home in D.C., he kept tabs on the local college players. He was friends with all the college coaches. He was very, very close with Lefty Drizel. So he went to see Maryland play, and he went to see his alma mater, George Washington, play, and he knew all those teams. And so he had seen Bias play a ton and loved him right away. 
Auerbach was smitten. With the kind of talent Bias had, how could he not be? So you take a guy like Lenny Bias, it was 100%. This was an all-American kid, a super kid. When the 86 draft rolled around, Boston knew who they wanted. Yes, there was Brad Doherty, who went number one overall. And then there was John Sally, who told us in episode two that he thought Auerbach liked him. But if given the chance to draft Bias, they wouldn't pass him up. Draft night arrived. As we know, with the second pick, Boston got its man. And Bias got his dream destination. Last night I had a dream that I missed the draft. I was thought I was back home. And I was trying to get a ride up here to New York. So that's the only thing that's been on my mind is where I'm going. I knew what was going to happen when the guy came over to me when I was sitting down and said, are you packed to go to Boston? I said, oh, yes, I am. In the NBA, this was unprecedented. The best team in the league one of the best teams in the history of the league, adding an incredible young talent. When Bias arrived in Boston that day, even the Celtics players couldn't contain their excitement. Here's Scott Van Pelt. He had the endorsements of the only people that mattered. Like, if if you weren't sure, well, Red and Larry just told you what they think. So you think something different? Well, then what, dude, what sort of an asshole are you, huh? Dude. Dude, Red and Larry told us that, you know, this kid, Leonard, you know, like, how could you not have been on board? Danny Ainge felt that energy, too. There's an unbelievable amount of excitement about the draft. Ainge hung out with Bias that day at the party thrown by Reebok. I mean, he, he just seemed like such a nice, naive, humble kid that was more excited than you could ever imagine. A dream come true had been fulfilled in him and um he just seemed like the world was in front of him and he was ready to take it news of bias's death left boston stunned and confused i still have uh, my old local newspapers from from that day it just stayed with me forever this is chad finn today he's a columnist for the boston globe but at the time he was a high school kid in bath maine obsessed with boston sports he even has a custom Lynn Bias rookie card he bought on eBay. You know, and the news slowly broke. You didn't really find out the circumstances for hours and even days. So it was one of those things where it was just a complete shell shock and you couldn't even believe it. And uh, you see the media coverage in that day. They, they didn't really know what to do early on. I don't know if it's a cliche, but it's the absolute truth. I just I remember the blood rushing out of my face and feeling numb and... To that point in my life, it was the first time I ever, ever felt that. And then taking the newspaper and just going outside and, and walking up and down my street and, and looking at it and reading the story over and over and just thinking, how can this be true? The grief in Boston looks so different than it did down in Maryland. The city itself just... It wasn't mourning. It was a mourning for someone they never met. They were mourning for the child they never had, for the star that they never were going to see blossom. In Maryland, the community lost someone they loved, someone they'd watched grow up, someone who represented the very best of their home state. In Boston, the loss of Lynn Bias felt like the loss of possibility. I don't think it was hyperbole to say that Len Bias was going to be something special. I, 
Now you never know until they get out there and play, but he had all the tools to be a great player for a long time. And he was going to be the bridge between the big three and the next group. That's the idea so many people point to. Bias is a generational bridge. The Celtics were the league's best team, yes, but in hindsight, their greatness was fragile. Bill Walton was 34 years old. Robert Parrish was 33. Bird and McHale were still firmly in their prime, but both dealt with nagging injuries. Bias could have lessened their load a little bit. Maybe he'd come off the bench at first, but he had the talent to make sure the Celtics barely missed a beat when Bird or McHale were resting. And eventually, as those guys aged, Bias would have taken the reins. That's how Ainge imagined it. He would have been worshipped in Boston. And the reason I feel that way is because a kid couldn't have been coming into a more perfect situation for himself. He was coming into a situation where he could have been a player that played with three Hall of Famers and he being number the fourth guy. But I could easily see Lynn playing with Kevin and Larry in the front court as a small forward or Larry playing the small forward and Lynn playing the power and Kevin playing the center. I don't know, I just think his athleticism and enthusiasm and energy would have been exactly what our team would have needed. But instead, those Celtics never won a title again. And it happened almost immediately. You know, they raised the banner, they start playing 86, 87. Of course, the Celtics have a great year, but Walton never really plays again. Bird's having heel problems and elbow problems and Parrish has a sprained ankle. And then, of course, they get to the finals. Somehow, even with all these injuries, the Celtics got back to the finals in 1987. But there, they lost again to Magic Johnson and the Lakers. And this group never got back. Ainge got traded in 89, and it's hard for him not to look back and wonder. Had Lynn been there, it would have been like a perfect transition. For Finn, who grew up watching the Celtics win titles in 81, 84, and 86, it was easy to get used to that kind of success. But it would be 22 years later, with Ainge long retired from playing and then working an Auerbach's old job, before the Celtics won a championship again. You can't help but look back on that and say, if they had had Len Bias, those guys wouldn't have been carrying the load that they carried. They wouldn't have had the postseason minutes that they had, and their careers would have been prolonged. You never stop thinking about that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So that's one piece of this what if question. 
how bias could have impacted the great players the Celtics already had. But eventually, even if their primes extended, those guys were going to retire. What then? Eventually, the Celtics would have become Bias's team. How high could he have taken them? It's impossible to know Bias's ceiling as a player, but most everyone I talked to had a strong opinion on what he could have been. Way back in the first episode of this series, we talked about the frequent comparisons to Michael Jordan. How might Jordan's career have been different if he had to contend with a Lynn Bias-led Celtics team in the Eastern Conference playoffs for a decade or more? Here's Mike Wilbon. I'm a person who believes Michael Jordan's the greatest player of all time. Period. Period. However. I am not going to tell you that the Bulls would have won six championships if Lynn Bias had lived and played with those Celtics. They're going to be rivals. And maybe Jordan would have gotten the best of them every time. Maybe. Maybe Lenny would have gotten the best of him every time. I, I don't think, I think when guys are that great, they figure it out and they're not going to let a guy dominate him. But if anybody thinks that Lenny Bias was overhyped, they, they need to turn on a recorder and look at some film and shut up. And Bias came along at a time when David Stern and the NBA were figuring out that for the league to succeed, it needed to market its superstars. Magic and Bird had changed the paradigm. Now Jordan had raised the ceiling of global superstardom. Bias could have emerged alongside him, two iconic players carrying the game into the 1990s. Scott Van Pelt tells a story that sheds some light here. Working at ESPN, he went to Orlando for a story on former Magic player Tracy McGrady. After we got done and we were walking out, Tracy kind of eyeballs me. I'm 6'6". And he's like, you're kind of tall. He's like, did you, you, did you play some ball? I said, I, I was good, but not quite good enough. I said, I went to Maryland around the same time as Len Bias. I said, you ever see him play? He's like, no. Nah. He's like, of course, I, I have heard and whatever. I was like, just, I said, if you're ever bored. I said, the game going head to head against Jordan. I said, you can find it. I said, you should see it because it's amazing. Now, while Van Pelt was talking to McGrady, another player walked up, Horace Grant. He was on the Magic at the time, but he's most famous for winning three championships with Jordan and the Bulls. Horace Grant is walking out and Tracy McGrady says, ho, what do you know about Len Bias? And Horace Grant goes, Whew, that was the baddest motherfucker I ever saw. And Tracy McGrady goes, you play with Michael Jordan? And Horace said, baddest motherfucker I ever saw. And I'm like, and I just shrugged. Now, to be clear, not everyone thought Bias had the potential to be near Jordan's equal. Here's Bob Ryan. No, no, that, that's going a bit too far. We're not talking about a mansion occupant of Mount Olympus. We're talking about a condo resident at Mount Olympus, okay? This is not bird magic Michael LeBron. This is the next level, which is a very good level. A 10-year perennial NBA All-Star, a Hall of Famer, a member of a championship team. But, whoa, let's put the brakes on, on, on uh, Michael Jordan. Bob makes another comparison. The closest comparison in terms of the level of who we would have been with something of the same skill set, but each guy was better at one thing than the other guy. James Worthy, that's the level we're talking about. Now, James Worthy is a Hall of Famer. He won three titles with the Lakers. He made seven all-star teams. When the NBA named the 50 greatest players of its first 50 seasons, Worthy was on that list. 
So if we're debating whether bias could have been Worthy or Jordan, we're starting the conversation with the assumption that he would have been a Hall of Famer. But still, the difference matters to some. Here's Jackie again. I always thought of him a little more like James Worthy, honestly. A little more size, you know. Bob Ryan said the same thing. (laughs) Oh, did he? Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in good company then. Yeah, so I think, to me, that's the comparison. I mean, but I think comparisons are difficult, especially because we never saw him play a day in the NBA. But he was as close to a can't miss as I can think of. That potential lost so early is such a big reason why Bias's story still grips so many 35 years after his death. Though he only covered Bias for a few college seasons, Wilbon still thinks about him, often. It saddens me to know that we missed that and know that the history of the NBA is lessened because of his absence. Throughout the 11 years he played in the NBA, John Sally felt the absence of his friend, Len Bias. When Sally imagines Bias on those Celtics teams, he thinks about what it would have been like, Sally and Bias, teammates at the five-star basketball camp, opponents in the ACC, friends sitting together at the draft, now going against each other while living their dreams in the NBA. And more broadly, When Sally thinks back to that era, he knows it may have looked different if Bias had lived. I've always said, I don't know, like I'm going to say again, if the narrative about Michael Jordan would have been the same if Len Bias was playing. Because that would have kept the Boston Celtics reign moving. I'll put it this way. Michael Jordan going against the Boston Celtics. They got the picture of him dribbling the ball between his legs, doing all this stuff, and then shooting it, going after Larry Bird. And it was like, oh, the high flying. That was great. But the deal is, Len Bias doesn't die. Nike would have had to split that money. They would have had to think of another way of designing what they were doing because Len Bias was a force on the East, he would have been with no question, like step in and play. So I I just think that would have been so big for Len to be at that spot and it would have changed the mentality of what the NBA was trying to sell. June 19th, 2021, marked the 35-year anniversary of Len Bias's death. 35 years later, and Bias still conjures these memories for those who watched him, played with him, and loved him. 35 years later, and his place in our collective cultural memory remains fixed. Personally, I was born about 18 months before Bias died. I have no memory of watching him play, but I can't remember a time when I didn't know who he was. We'll never know who Bias could have become in his life. In his death, he has become an object of fascination and a source of incredible grief. He's become someone whose name is known everywhere for how he died, for what his loss meant, and for who he was during the 22 years he lived. The entire time I've worked on this project, something Lenise Bias said has stuck with me. I really didn't know who Len was until he died. She knew him as her son, She knew she loved him, 
but she didn't know what he meant to people. For so many of the people in this story, Bias's memory has followed them everywhere in the years since. Keith Gatlin is now an assistant coach at High Point University. He finds himself talking about Bias with young players sometimes, trying to make sure they understand who his friend and teammate was. I think the perception when you talk to young kids with Lynn Bias is that I saw the YouTube, he was a great player, he died of drugs. That's what all the young kids say. You know, what happened or how good was it, whatever. And, and I tell them all the time, well, YouTube clip is nothing. You got to really see his full body of work. As the years pass, the number of people who really saw him get smaller, bit by bit. Memories of watching him live slip away, replaced by another generation who only remembers watching clips of him online. Even in his own home, Mike Wilbon finds himself working to keep Bias's memory alive. I think that because people don't hear Lenny's voice, they don't hear his voice. There's no real clips here, Granny. My, I try to make my son come in when I'm in the room watching, and he's like, Dad, I can't even tell what this is. And so maybe if there were more footage of that jump shot that he beat UT Chattanooga with, you could sort of explain it to a new generation. It's hard. You know, they can't go to YouTube and get something digital in super HD, and you don't really want to hear the story being told. But it's the saddest story, saddest ending to a story that I've ever been part of as a, as a journalist. This one, yeah, I think it haunts all of us who were there for it. For Scott Van Pelt, it can feel as raw today as it did 35 years ago. There's a public school kid like me who's from here, who went here and stayed here and became this guy who was going to carry like our hopes and wishes with him. And then he died. Right now, I am emotional. Right now, it hurts that he didn't get to go be that and that his family had to carry that weight with them. Like, I don't, that just is an unreasonable burden. And so it's just, I don't know, it was and is heavy. It's, it's the kind of loss that it's odd how it, um, like I lost my dad not long after that. And that's far different. That's intensely personal, clearly. But I got a chance as an older man, and I got married later in life, but I got a chance to become a husband and a dad. And I get a chance to now, I have a son named after my dad. And there's ways to process that loss and grow from that loss and have it become something that in some ways feels positive. Leonard's loss will only ever feel like what it was and is, which is just this loss. Like, I don't feel like you grow from it. I don't feel like anybody benefited from it. I don't, like, it just feels like loss. Derek Curry thinks back to watching his best friend, Jay Bias, struggle with his brother's death. He was never the same. It really crushed him. And I think it, it hurt him from in so many different ways. Um, number one, that's your brother. You know, number two, that's your brother you looked up to, that was a basketball star, but also the pressure that was put on him. Yeah. And everybody put that pressure on Jay to be like, okay, well, you, 
you got to follow your brother's footsteps. Mm. You got to be the next limb by. And he couldn't handle that. He didn't want that. Jay had a lot of basketball talent himself, but his basketball career never really took off. I think he just, after Lenny passed, the love of the game, the pressure, it just got to him. I, I really believe that. Then, in December of 1990, the Bias family suffered another tragedy. Jay was shot outside a shopping mall over what police called a minor insult. Jay ran into a childhood friend and greeted her, which made her husband, a man named Jerry Tyler, angry. Then, when Jay was leaving, Tyler and his friend Gerald Island drove by, and Tyler shot and killed Jay. Curry was getting a haircut when he saw the news on TV. So I see the news, and I see a big picture of Jay. Oh, man. And I'm like, what they got a picture of Jay on there for? And then I see the yellow tape and the police, so I jump up. And they said, you know, younger brother, Lim Bob, J. Bob, just shot at Prince George Plaza. And I'm like, that can't be. I just saw Jay. Yeah, yeah. And so I jumped up, and by the time I got to uh, Prince George Plaza, they had already took him to Leland Memorial Hospital, which is literally two or three minutes from the yeah. mall, the same hospital that Lenny died yeah. in. And by the time I got there, he had passed away. Jay Bias was 20 years old. For that family to lose both of them is just... Man, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was tough, man. It, it was tough. But he has a very... Their family, man, is a strong, strong family. Yeah. Um, very strong, spiritual family. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's strange, all of the forms grief can take. The way it can consume you, then slip into the background, then come back with full force. The way wounds can heal and reopen and heal yet again. Remember how we heard the stories of his mother Lenise's incredible calm after Lynn died? Her determination to comfort those around her. Well, with her second son also dead, the full force of her grief came to the surface. Two sons standing on one son's grave and burying another. And um, I remember when I went to the same hospital with the same bad news about Jay, it was 42 months difference in their deaths, 42 months apart. And I said that I was a woman of faith and, oh, God, strengthen me. And God, 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 and Lynn died, you know, because I said I felt God had given me the strength to stand and to comfort everyone. And, oh, God, 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 God. But when Jay died, God and I had it out. When I went into the waiting room at the hospital and my daughter told me that Jay was dead, I trashed the room. I beat the walls in with my hands. I tore everything up. And when I came out and the nurse asked me, and she said, I have uh, Jay uh, prepared so you can see him. And I said, I'm not gonna do this again. I, I could have fought her and I walked out. Why do you feel like your, the grief process with Jay was so different for you and more visceral in, in many ways than it was when, when you lost Len? 
Well, because we had already done something hard. The sacrifice was given. And then 42 months later, it was like, this is, no, this can't be happening. This is not fair. No, I shouldn't have to do this. Lenise has grieved them both over a period of decades, bit by bit. Even this very conversation feels like a piece of that process. Well, every family member of ours, in my family, my husband, my children, everybody grieves differently because many people, if they lose a loved one, they bury the loved one and it's personal. But talking to you, see, it's right back against, I'm telling you, Jordan, I have nothing for people. I'm not a superwoman. If it were not for God, I would be cuckoo. I would be right up at the cemetery, standing over both of my son's graves, beating the dirt, probably strung out on something myself, not knowing my head from my feet, but God has kept my family and I. Lenise has spent the years since her sons died traveling and speaking, sharing her story of grief, of rebuilding her life in the wake of tragedy. As I have opportunities to teach and to speak, it brings healing to me. The more I give out, the more healing I get. The grief goes down because the love I had for my sons, I'm giving it out in encouragement. You know, life is hard. Everybody's trying to make it. But I just try to encourage and love and to motivate to let people know, yes, I went through and my family went through, but guess what? You can make it. Don't throw in the towel. And that's one of the things that Len did. I believe that my two sons were two seeds that went down into the ground. And years later, here you and I are talking. It's unbelievable. It's hard to imagine her son Len today in 2021. He would be 57 years old. He would still be tall, still broad-shouldered. Beyond that, we don't know. Maybe he would have children, maybe even grandchildren. Maybe he would have a few NBA championship rings. If you believe the people who saw him play, he would definitely have a bust in the Hall of Fame. Maybe we'd be talking about him as a peer to Michael Jordan. Or maybe a James Worthy, or maybe something in between. He would have his mother, and he would have his old teammates, and he would have decades of new experiences, new relationships, and new memories. Life can take you to some strange places, but it's nice to imagine that all of those bonds would have remained strong. And it's easy to imagine how he would have been embraced by those who never got to know him. By his teammates in Boston, by Celtics fans, by arenas all across the country filled with people experiencing his magnetic talent for the first time. But we don't know. We don't know any of it. So here's a moment we do know. A moment many saw live and that many more can see now if they go hunting for the right clip online. It's June 17th, 1986. Leonard Kevin Bias is sitting at Madison Square Garden, waiting. He's wearing a cream-colored suit, slim-fitting, with a white press shirt and a black tie. His father is with him, 
So is his friend, John Sally. His mother and his siblings are all back home in Maryland, watching him on TV. David Stern calls his name. The Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. He stands and he smiles. He walks onto the stage and he shakes the commissioner's hand. He's been drafted by a team he'll never play for. He's sending a jolt of excitement through a city that will never get to know and love him as they should. But right then, he looks happy. After leaving the stage, he sits down for an interview. He fidgets with the Boston Celtics cap in his hands. Throughout the night, both before and after he's picked, Bias answers questions about the future, about his new team, about his new role, about who he can become. So I just go out and play the best I can. I never give up. I always want to strive to be the best. And I always play for my mom and dad, because I say if I play good here, then maybe it'll get me to where I want to go and I can take care of my mom, my dad, my little sisters and brothers. What If the Lynn Bias Story is written and reported by me, Jordan Ritterkahn. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Our producers are Mallory Rubin, Noah Malale, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee. With production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. David Shoemaker designed our logo. Special thanks to Sasha Oshall, Steve Allman, Kara Kornhaber, Logan Rhodes, TD St. Matthew Daniel, Sean Fennessy, Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman, and Bill Simmons. Thank you to Dr. Lenise Bias and everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this project. And thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>